Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the O Group I'm here on the World Nation podcast with myself, World War II Explorer Lawrence Waller and my colleague, Battlefield Guide Ben Main here at World Nation. Today marks the anniversary of the liberation of Rome in 1944 and as such we're diving right back into our conversation with Ledger's head Battlefield Guide Paul Reed as we discuss these events during the Italian campaign in the Second World War. a costly decision really and obviously i saw on twitter uh, a few days back actually maybe even a week ago where you posted a picture of your your father and his and you're telling us about his experience on entering rome i'd love to hear more about that yeah well what, what happened was um i mean you know again there's a lot of barrack room talk with any veterans you know when, when you interview veterans you've always got to accept that there can be stories that they tell that don't bear close analysis um but that doesn't, you know, it's not dismissive of the value of, of oral history because certainly I've found with, with a lot of veterans that they've kept this inside for so long that it's been waiting to get out like a, a cork in a bottle. And, and none of them, the, one, the best ones I've ever spoken to, they never really read any books on the Second World War, didn't even know that their division or their battalion wrote a unit history or anything like that. So you've got sort of this you know, distilled raw version of their memoirs, as it were, of, of a particular action. But having said that, there's a widespread belief, and I'm not sure whether this is true, that Mark Clark somehow tried to keep the Commonwealth, British and Commonwealth troops back from entering Rome. So it would be an American victory rather than a, than a you know, just a Fifth Army British Commonwealth and an American victory. But what happened was, of course, you know, you need to send men forward to find out where the enemy is. And my father being in the battery commander's OP tank. They couldn't take the tank out there, but they took a Jeep to go and see where the uh, potential problems might be as they moved up out the Anzio Bridgehead up to the outskirts of Rome. And pretty much, you know, from what he said, they just kept going. And uh, and they bumped into um, the Special Service Brigade, which is the um, that mixed force of American and Canadian uh, Special Forces unit that had fought at Anzio and was in part of the breakout. And they have a strange mix of equipment and weaponry um that uh, that you see and they got there and i mean my dad always said that he said oh you know we were there we were watching the, uh, the americans coming into rome um on this straight bit of road and there was the big roma sign indicating you're on the outskirts of rome and he described how eventually mark clark turned up in his staff car and had his photograph taken in front of it and then pinched the the sign um, and took it away and indeed um, there's, there's a book called The Impossible Victory, which is about um, an officer in the Middlesex Regiment who fought in Italy, uh, who became a journalist. And he goes to visit Mark Clark in the 60s, I think it is, when he's, um, don't quote me, in charge of West Point or something like that. And, um, and he takes a hell of a job to get an interview with him, but he gets one and uh, you know, has a chat with him. And he goes to Mark Clark's house and the Roma sign is in his garden. Um, on a couple of wooden, <laughs> couple of wooden posts. Anyway, my dad always said that there was you know, there was a photographer taking pictures there, um, but he'd never ever seen them. And then I can't. I went to some some military affair or bookshop somewhere, you know, back in the eighties, and there was a book on on Italy that I'd never seen before, and I, I picked it up to take back for him. And on the train coming home, I sort of turned this page, and there was this picture with a roma sign in the background and this this tommy with his back to the camera 
And as soon as I saw her, you know, you can't see his face, but I thought, that's my, that's my dad, because that's, that's how he used to sit on the settee <laughs> <laughs> at home. So I knew it was him. And I took it back. I didn't say anything to him. I just took it back, opened it up in front of him on the kitchen table. Uh, and he said, crikey, yeah, that's it. So um, so that, that's it. And I, funny enough, just today on Facebook, um, a series of pictures, it was prompted the tweet that you saw by somebody who posted a photograph of one of these uh, guys with a, with a bazooka uh, with the same signs in the background. I've seen the whole set of photos now. And it's taken after um, that period that my dad was there by the look of it. It looks as if they came back with some time life photographers and took some pose shots of, of these guys sort of flashing their weapons around and stuff like that. But but I've yet to find the full sort of camera sequence, you know, because there could be some shots on the other side where you, you actually do see my dad's face. Well, that'd be incredible if you could find those. I'd love to see them. Um, so how much was Rome overshadowed by D-Day and, and what happens next? Well, I suppose that I suppose that's Mark Clark's hubris, isn't it? Because you know he, he enters Rome on on the eve of D-Day, and just you know thinking that there's going to be these front page articles about General Mark Clark liberating Rome, you know, uh, like some great emperor. Uh, but of course, the sixth of June, nineteen forty-four, takes place delayed because of the weather. Um, and it's for for Mark Clark in terms of his publicity, it's a fatal delay because the papers are full of that and they're not full of Rome. Rome's a footnote. So he doesn't quite get the, um, the publicity and the glory that he'd, uh, that he'd hoped for. But, it, you know, from a, from a strategic point of view in terms of the rest of the campaign, there's no doubt that it, it allowed a significant part of the German armed forces to pull back north of Rome. And the Germans look at repeating exactly what they'd done with the Gustav line, with the construction of the next line of defence, which would be the Gothic line. And and we're talking, how does the campaign, I suppose, develop from here? We're talking, what, summer 44 into the winter of 44, those, those few months. Is it, again, just an attritional push, trying to break through that next line and then from there, the next one? Well, I mean, the Germans just, they do exactly the same thing. They slow us down. I mean, there are all these little battles that nobody's ever heard of you know, north of Rome on, on the Mediterranean side. And then if you go from uh, the coast, from uh, Ortona um, up towards Rimini, they're doing exactly the, the same there. So, you know, John Dray, my um, old pal with the 5th North Ants in the Battle Axe Division, um, they were sent up to Lake Tresemino, north of Rome in June 44, following the, the breakout from, from Monte Cassino. And... Um, he ended up at a place called Monte Gabbioni. I mean, you know, that's that you don't, you're not going to see a book on Monte Gabbioni coming out any any day soon. Um, it's a small scale two unit action where Fifth North Ants took on um, a German Panzer Grenadier battle group that was in a um, top of a top of a hill where there was a town, Monte Gabbioni. They had a tank support. Um, but it was an infantry assault. John Dre was in the carrier platoon then, so he was in the in a Bren gun carrier and they needed ammunition. So he took the Bren carrier up there with boxes of small arms ammunition and so on, and ended up being finding himself in the scrap. Um, and they were fighting in the streets there. I mean, he was in a house where they were one side of the street, um, and the Germans were the other side, and they were trying to knock hell's bells out of each other. And the Germans threw um, phosphorus grenades into the house that they were in, set the thing alight. And the battalion Padre, uh, who was a bit of a character, was in the house with them. 
and um and he said uh, i mean he shouldn't have you know been right in the thick of combat but there he was uh, and he said you know we need to get out of here so we'll have to jump off the um the balcony at the back so they said well yeah that's all right they looked and there was about 30 foot drop <laughs> so um you know what what do you do you've got 30 foot drop or the house is being engulfed in flames you're going to burn alive so gradually the padre went first i think he, he dropped off and then the others went with him but one of the guys one of john's mates had been killed and his body was in the house and John, even then, was obsessed with the Great War because his father had been in it and his dad had died when he was 12 with the effects of his wounds that he'd received. And he'd read just about every flipping book you could get, get your hands on as a kid to do with the First World War. And he sort of thought of these great monuments on the Western Front of missing soldiers. And he didn't like the idea of his mate's body being incinerated and his mum having no grave to go and see after the war. So he went back into this burning building, grabbed this dead lad by his webbing straps, and the Germans were, you know, bullets were pinging off the front door and he kicked the front door open and the Germans stopped at this point and saw him dragging this body out and they didn't shoot him. And he did it. He said he could see the eyes you know, looking from the buildings in front of him. He dragged this body out there, dumped it in the street um, and then rushed back into the building, slammed the door behind him. As he slammed it, bullets pinged the outside of it once more. And he went round to the balcony and jumped off the back. Jeez. And uh, yeah, so in... I think when this was 2003, 2004, um, I went to the cemetery not far from there where those lads from that action are, are buried and we stood at Jackie's grave. Um, and it was quite a moment for John. He'd never never gone to that cemetery before and um, and he stood there at the grave of the lad whose body couldn't save his life, but he saved his body from being incinerated and, there he was in a marked grave, forever cared for by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Incredibly powerful story, that is. Um, one of the things that struck me, Paul, in reading for this was, well, there were two things, actually, really, with the Italian campaign. One was the sheer range of nationalities involved in this coalition fighting in the Italian campaign, and also the incredible, incredibly powerful impact the weather played on this campaign. It was a real core thing wasn't it at the heart of which dictated how the campaign developed it was it, i mean it was a truly multinational army 15 army group which was the whole of the allied forces in in italy had at one stage i think by 1944 something like 16 different nationalities but once you start to take religious groups into consideration within the indian army uh, for example and also um with french uh, free french forces you're looking at sort of really far more different groups of people um, and, and some obscure ones like Brazilians. I mean, you know, who, who knows that there was a Brazilian expeditionary force fighting with 15 Army Group in the Italian campaign, for example. Um, and with all these different creeds and nationalities and religions, it created all sorts of problems um, with the, the less sexier side of military history, which is logistics, in feeding these people because you know you, you couldn't give certain religions certain types of meat on certain days they needed to observe religious um, festivals and, and so on as, as much as that was was possible um, so there was all those considerations and it meant that any commander initially alexander and then mark clark was promoted to become 15 army group commander I think, again, you know, we mentioned this earlier about the, the lack of American commitment to Italy. Once they began to cherry pick American units for the invasion of Brittany in the um, in the summer of 44, 
the Brits were desperate to keep a hold of the fight in Italy and by promoting Mark Clark to become the army commander, you know, this was a way of keeping American interest in it going, I would guess, uh, perhaps from a cynical sort of point of view. But um, yeah, so the, the national, I mean, the nationality side of it is an incredible one. And it means that, you know, when you go to visit the battlefields now, you're not just looking at uh, British cemeteries. When we do tours there, we, we obviously we visit German ones as well. Um, but, you know, there are the graves of the Jewish Brigade. We see Indian cremation memorials. There's Polish graves, um, you know, free French cemetery at Vanafro. Um, you know, and it just goes on and on. So uh, it's an incredible army, really, that fought against Nazi Germany um, in Italy in, in those 14 months from 1943 to, uh, to the end of the conflict. And the weather, yeah, I mean, just like the geography, the weather was a massive, massive element of, of what it was like. And, and it went from being sub-zero, freezing cold, you know, so boiling so hot, like I said, that bully beef melted in the tins and you could pour it out like it was a liquid. And the rains came, turned the roads into mud. I mean, there's some amazing archive film in the uh, Imperial War Museum showing the conditions on the roads in Italy, you know, and showing how you could not go off these main drags. People say, well, why don't they take this road to try and bypass Casino or bypass whatever? And then you see these see these images of the of, of these supposed roads we're going to use to do this and they can't even take a jeep um you know let alone um anything else and, and there were many places that vehicles couldn't go to i mean one of one of the places that john dray was very keen to go back to when we went to casino was a place called the jeep head which was um a position just north of casino in the approaches to snake's head ridge which is as far as vehicles could go so that's the jeeps were the last things to to get there they went across something called the mad mile which was a bit of a stretch of open ground which could be seen from the german positions at the monastery and was regularly hit by nebelwerfers and heavy mortars and artillery and stuff uh, and then you got to the jeep head and after that it was on foot or it was on mule or donkey so um you know a huge part of the logistics train uh britain went to war with the most mobile you know one of the most mobile armies in 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 the world but italy proved that you couldn't always employ that mobility. You had to go back to the traditional methods of soldiers carrying stuff or or animals carrying stuff. And um, men froze to death in Italy. You know, there's no doubt about it. I've read examples of it in in, in war diaries. Uh, it was so cold, men froze to death. And um, and sickness in some units, you know, during those periods. You know, there was as many casualties from that as there were from German... Um, enemy fire so um it was a very challenging battlefield for these men to fight on probably far more challenging than than northwest europe and um and i think that's you know when veterans of that campaign saw how it was denigrated both at the time and and post-war the idea of them being d-day dodgers having a holiday in sunny italy you know (laughs) that that caused them a lot of upset um, because you know they, as they often said, um, these guys got no had no idea how tough it was for us here. It definitely felt when reading up on it that there was connotations between similar conditions to Italy in terms of terrain, weather, the hardships and deprivations these guys have to go to in terms of getting supplies and the, you know where they have to live. Um, to you know, 14th Army experience in Burma, for example. 
Definitely, yeah, definitely. I, I think that there, there's there would you you would as an Italian campaign veteran, you would have a kinship with those men because you know you were cut off, often cut off and isolated, in a similar sort of way. You know, not so much perhaps with the chindits, um, but you know certainly uh, these men they lived on on the edge really in so many ways, which the troops fighting in Normandy and Belgium and the Netherlands and on into Germany in 1944-45 never experienced anything like that really um, because there were friendly forces you know close by and there was chance of rest and there was you know so on but in Italy it was very different it was warfare at its at some of its rawest really. How did the campaign develop and finally conclude I suppose from late 44 into 45? Well, the Germans holding us up at places like Monte Gabbione in these small-scale battalion actions and, you know, fighting around Rimini and so on, um, once again slowed us down uh, and gave them time to build what we call the Gothic Line, which was another system of defences that went from the Adriatic coast north of Rimini across to the other side around Florence. So September 44, with battles like the Coriano Ridge, you see um, the next phase are trying to battle our way through that. And by this stage, we've developed the ability to take on these static defences. It's all very well to build them, but static defences are, by their nature, potentially vulnerable if your enemy has got um, a considerable advantage in air power, which we had, considerable advantage in artillery, which we had, um, and a considerable logistics um, advantage, which, which we also had. And we were still, I mean, if you look at some of those final battles, there was an amphibious operation up at uh, Lake Camaccio where they landed commandos in buffaloes. Um, so we were still looking at ways to try and bypass some of these, these static locations. And once it moves beyond the Gothic line and you get up into the Bologna plain, so beyond um, Faenza and, uh, and up towards Bologna, and, and you're coming into the Battle of the Rivers, then these really minor sort of um, ditch-like rivers, Senio and things like this, where it becomes, again, a battle of where specialist kit that had been, for example, used in Normandy, so Churchill AVREs and bridge layers, arc bridge layers and all this sort of stuff, become absolutely essential in the ability to get across this sort of ground. And the Germans utilise the terrain to slow us down and, and inflict casualties on it. So that slogging match really, you know, continued. Um, right up until the final battle on, on the River Po uh, and that crossing of the Po and the collapse of German forces in the north um, led in April 1945 to the end of the Italian campaign. And, and what happened to Mussolini? Because obviously there's a very famous picture of, uh, I think it's in Milan, of him and his mistress, isn't there? Well, that's right, yeah. The, the Italians turned on what was left of, of this fascist government in the, in the final phase. I mean, he'd been captured and held in that mountaintop and then released by the uh, you know, German commandos, in inverted commas, and got away. But in the end, um, he uh, was a victim of circumstances in that final phase of the war when, yeah, famously, him and his mistress and various other people from his government was strung up in the street um, because for the Italians in the north of Italy, you know, the, again, there's huge amounts of, of people that had communist sympathies there as there had been in other parts of Italy. And there was active resistance there, but the right was on the wall. 
you know, in the, in the spring of 1945, Germany was not going to win this war and the Italian campaign was coming to an end and, and they, they weren't going to just stand around and not make it clear to the Allies which side of the wall that they were on. So, um, you know, that's what led to that. From your own perspective and the research you've done, obviously, you, you know, your own father's experiences, how important was the Italian campaign to ultimately seeing the downfall of Hitler in the Third Reich? Its contribution, I should say. Well, I, I think it's it's an underrated contribution. Um, you were never going to win the war in Italy. That, that's that's clear. It was never a, a soft underbelly uh, because of the nature of the terrain. I mean, Churchill failed Gallipoli in 1915 to really understand the importance of terrain on, on a battlefield. And he certainly did with uh, with the Italian campaign. So this tough old gut uh, was, you were never going to win the war there, but, you know, we are fighting a coalition war. The Germans, to defeat them, you're going to have to stretch them to breaking point. And what a campaign like Italy does is contribute massively towards that because it doesn't just draw away German units that would have been behind the Atlantic War, would have been opposing the Allies in Normandy. It also draws away units, as we mentioned before, that would have been fighting the Russians because the success in 1944-45 was not just what happened on the 6th of June 1944. It was also Operation Bagration and, and all the operations in the East as well. And the Russians came to Italy um, to come and sort of see what was going on. There's a there's a place, um, Monte Camino, to the south of Casino, and there's a position there called Bear Arst Ridge. And it's a big, open, scraggy bit of ground, again, when they were living in Sangers there. And um, Stalin felt that we were not doing enough to keep the, the Germans at bay in Russia, and in uh, Italy, rather, and, um, and it was nothing compared to the sort of fighting on the Russian front. So he sent some Russian observers down there and uh, Alexander sent them up to um, Bear Arse Ridge, up a mule track where the Germans were only like tens of yards away and there was a hell of a lot of machine gun and mortar fire and so on. And these guys came back down pretty shell-shocked by the whole experience and reported back to uh, Uncle Joe that actually, yeah, this was quite a tough battlefield and that the, uh, the British were definitely doing as much as they could to keep the Germans um, at bay and so on. So it's seeing it in that context, really, you know, um, and I think that the, you know, one of the eternal questions with any type of warfare and, and one of the lessons of the 20th century beyond the two world wars is, is can we uh, accept the consequences of conflict, which are casualties? Um, now we can't, you know, a few men um, and women get killed um, in a country somewhere where, we're fighting and, and it makes governments question what they're doing. The Italian campaign costs 70,000 dead um, to defeat the Germans in Italy. Was that a price worth paying to tie up all those German divisions? I mean, that's one of the wider wider aspects of historical study. I mean, from an, as a, from an historical point of view, from with my historian goggles on, I would say, yeah, it was because you could not have won in Normandy and you could not have won on the Eastern Front without tying up those units. I think there was something like, if you look at the, by the end of the conflict in Italy, there was always more German divisions, I think, in Italy than there were um, British Commonwealth and, and American. So it tied up a huge number of, of German forces, including 
some of the best, you know, of their Panzer Grenadier units. Um, so it was an important theatre of war. It was a vital part of the overall victory. But of course, you know, when you look at um, soundbite history, people skip to the headline and the headlines Normandy. And just staggering, staggering casualty figure that is. And I think you sort of hit the nail on the head there, really, with it's not even just the number of units it ties down from a German perspective, I suppose. It's also the resources needed to supply those troops in terms of war material, in terms of food, fuel, vehicles, aircraft, which could have been used elsewhere. And obviously, in a situation where Germany is so resource stricken, um, it's a massive impact, isn't it, really? Definitely, yeah. And you're also making the Germans fight in a in terrain which they don't really want to fight in as well. Because, you know, if you look at the, the, the German victories in the Second World War, it's, it's these huge um, actions where they can employ a huge amount of armoured forces and fight over big distances where they've got the advantage in, the, in gunnery and optics and everything else. And Italy wasn't like that. It was, you know, it was like we've said, it was war very much um, in the raw where men, I mean, the infantry veterans that I've interviewed, some of the stories that they, they tell about the sort of fighting that they took part in in Italy, it's pretty much nothing like anything that you're going to see in, in the Northwest Europe campaign with some exceptions, you know, Arnhem being a, a pretty good example of that. These guys were, you know, hand-to-hand fighting in villages and bayonet charges across open ground and, you know, mortar barrages and never worth of barrages constantly where there's no way down off the top of a rocky crag like Camino or, or wherever it is. Um, this was a tough war for these guys. You say very much First World War-esque. Um, now, you've obviously been back to Italy like you've mentioned numerous times down the years and obviously retracing veterans' footsteps um, as you recounted a few tales to us today. Now, one of those, obviously, which you know full well that I would have loved to have spoken to was Fred Mason, um, who was obviously on a recent, I think it was BBC documentary, if memory serves correct. What That's was right. his experience? Yeah, I mean, Fred was, yeah, he was on the Gary Lineker uh, the documentary about the D-Day Dodgers, which was, you know, good to... Uh, Good to see. Um, yeah, he he served at Anzio um, with the Second North staffs and, and was there for quite some time. And he landed on the beach there, and he came back to me uh, with me to to Italy. I think on three occasions. And um, one time, actually, I, I thought he'd passed away, but it, it was a big gap, and he came back, and he was still fighting fit. So he was there for the 70th anniversary in um, in 2014, which was good to see him. Yeah, I mean he was a frontline soldier in front of uh, the flyover at, uh, at Anzio, dug in in slit trenches there, holding the line, bayonets fixed, German attacks, night patrols. He experienced all of that. And he was a bit of a sort of an amateur artist and he painted quite a few uh, of these battlefields, both sort of rough sketches at the time and then and did them properly in, in later life. And uh, on a couple of the trips, he took examples um, back with him to give to museums there. There's one in the museum at uh, at Anzio, for example, showing his um, his view of the of the flyover there. And you know, as a battlefield guide going to a with a group to Italy, um, which certainly in in every single tour that I ever did with with Ledger, 
there was always veterans. I mean, sometimes we could have 40 people in a group and 12 of them were veterans. And for some guides, that could be quite intimidating because, you know, there you are as the expert, if you like, and you're telling these people what the war in Italy was all about. <laughs> You've got a dozen <laughs> guides on board who were actually there. But, you know, it, it's actually, from a guide's point of view, it's probably one of the best things that you could ever have because you've got the way to tell the story of the war and then invite them up as guests to tell it as it was. And, you know, I got Fred on the microphone, I don't know how many times when we went to Anzio, talking about what it was like to come ashore, you know, um, the fear of the darkness in, in landing and not knowing where the Germans would be or whether, you know, one crack and the whole coastline would open up and you'd be mowed down on the beach. And then once you'd landed in, got inland and, and it became like trench warfare, what it was like to experience that. And I had so many of these guys that had done so many amazing things and, and they would not be at all bothered about relating this to to the group i mean we went up to on the tour <clears throat> um i always took the groups up to the snake's head ridge which um is probably the least accessible part of the monte Cassino battlefield and um very very few tours go there because it's so inaccessible, you have to get permission from the monastery or it's changed a lot, but that, essentially that's what it was like. But it's the most important place to go to really, because that is frontline Monte Cassino. It's where you can really see the dominance of the monastery, its importance and everything else. Anyway, one of the trips we, we were up there, a, a lot of groups think, well, we're going to go up the top of a mountain today. How's that going to work out? Anyway, get them up there uh, and you can relay the whole battlefield to them. And on this particular trip, I had a guy called Donald Lear, who was an officer in the 4th, 16th Punjabis in the uh, 4th Indian Division. And he joined in February 44 at Snakeshead um, as a young officer straight out of, of, of officer training school. And he came, sent up the, got to the, the jeep head, went up with the um, supply column. And there was some mules coming back and strapped to one of the mules was the mutilated body of a British officer. And that was his company commander who'd been hit by a mortar and killed and was being brought back for uh, for burial. And when he got up there, he discovered that he was now the only British officer in his in his company, that the company commander had been the last one. So he arrived at a battalion position and his own company position in which he was in command now. He'd never met the men. He'd never seen the positions in daylight uh, and I had no idea what the dispositions were or where the enemy was. Um, so he said, you know, talk about being dropped in at, uh, at the deep end. But he was there when the when the bombers came out of the, the clouds at 17,000 feet and bombed the monastery. And he, and he stood there and he gave like a 20-minute talk to the group and had them in absolute awe as he described how, what it was like to watch the monastery just erupt in this huge deluge of, of these of these bombs um so we were free, you know very very lucky to, to do that and every time we went you know we we had guys like this and and in my own trips you'd, you'd bump into them and the other aspects which is unlike any other battlefield that you go to in western europe from the second world war is that every single trip that i went on we would always encounter german veterans that german veterans you, you yeah, they they have gone to Normandy and they've gone to some other places, but they're never they're always conscious 
of who they are and perhaps not explaining who they are. Whereas in Italy, these guys, yeah, they just wander around. Um, and it's quite clear that they're German veterans. You know, some of them I've seen wear their medals and things like that. Um, the Italians accept them. And so it's a place they, they felt happy. And you could just sort of bump into these guys. I mean, I, I met this guy called Otmar Bulldorf. Um, we were doing a walk um, down to the tank, the Sherman tank, the Polish Sherman tank at Albanita. And uh, we'd gone to see it and then I wandered around there. And we're coming back. And as we're coming back up the track to, um, to Snakeshead, um, these, these two guys are coming down the track towards us. And it's not an area because it was closed off to the public. Uh, that you really saw that many people. So we stopped and talked to them and, and they weren't English, and they weren't Italian uh, and then quickly discovered that they were German. So we got talking to him. And, and initially I didn't clock this guy as a veteran because he didn't look old enough, to be honest with you. And, and they were asking, um, you know, Vois de Panzer, where is the tank? Um, so we give them directions. And, uh, you know, why, why do you want to go? What's, what's your interest in casino? And this guy, Otmar, he looked at me and went, well, I, I fought you. And um, so we got chatting to him and he was in a 361 Panzer Grenadier Regiment. Um, and uh, his company had been fighting in the town and he'd been detached from his main battalion and sent up to Snakeshead to fight alongside the Falschimjäger there, the paratroopers. And uh, we got nattering about this and the other. And, and uh, German veterans in particular, very often in their wallet, they, they used to have, and I found this many, many times with German veterans, they would have wartime photographs of themselves so i said to him you got any, got any pictures with you you know any photographs he said oh yeah he said and he got his wallet out and a picture of him wearing a zelt barn um and a picture of him um in um in in sort of barracks clothing so in his normal um tunic but he's got the iron cross iron cross first and second class so i said oh iron cross first class he said uh, yeah he said yeah yeah the uh, under a Führer, our leader presented that to me in uh, 1944. Um, you know, so it, it's just incredible that you meet these guys. Um, and, and and he spoke to us for about a, about an hour or so, uh, and was very open. And he fought the um, New Zealanders at Orsogna, and he said that they were the best troops that he ever came across in uh, in Italy, toughest troops that he ever fought. He said every soldier he fought in Italy was a tough soldier because of the sort of war that it was, but the for him, the New Zealanders were um, were the toughest. He was wounded in the final battle of Casino, and, and that was pretty much the end of his war. He was medically uh, discharged. But like a lot of German veterans, again, you know, he gave me well, his friend gave me his address, but they they never liked corresponding about stuff. And um, although battlefield atrocities by German Wehrmacht units in Italy were less common than other theatres of war. That's always in the background of any discussion about Second World War with a German veteran. And, um, you know, having the benefit of being able to speak German with them, it obviously is an advantage, but you need to be able to make them feel comfortable about their experiences. So, uh, or to be able to talk about, comfortably enough to be able to talk about those experiences. So it's interesting. So, uh, you know, it's a great place for, for the vets. And it's, it's the thing that, just like the battlefields of the Great War for me, it's the thing that I will now always miss because that generation, the second world war generation is now is fading away. You know, my dad died a couple of years ago and old John boy, John Dre, 
you know, it's a fair few years since he passed away now. And pretty much every veteran that travelled with me, apart from Fred Mason, um, travelled with me to, to Italy with Ledger, have all marched up to the Snake's Head or wherever. <laughs> That's it. Uh, they're beyond the sight of men now. So it's uh, it makes it a different place to go to. But the voices from that campaign and, you know, and the sort of things that you've done, Lawrence, by interviewing veterans, it's so important to get these voices down and record them because uh, I just wish that I, you know, 30 years ago, I'd have had the technology to record veterans from the Great War sort of technology that we have now. Mm. Uh, as you say, we've, we are reaching that tipping point where we are going to lose that direct contact with that generation. And it's, it's, uh, it's a very sad period, to be honest with you. You say, mm. having gone through that, getting to know some of the veterans, um, even had the good fortune of, of joining um, one of them on a battlefield tour and retracing their footsteps. It's nothing quite like it, is there? No, 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 that, absolutely. And I mean, there was, I had one guy, Richard Hargreaves, who was a parachute regiment officer who was awarded the Military Cross. And um, he was in um, 4th Battalion Parachute Regiment, which is, they, were deta- they weren't part of 1st Airborne Division. They stayed in Italy. And again, they were used as like ground troops. And uh, he fought at Casino in the town. Um, and anyway, he, he, he went on. He, he, be, he served in the SAS later on. Um, and was a career soldier. Um, and a tough cookie. You know, I think he was Lieutenant Colonel when he, when he finally um, retired. Um, and... And he uh, spoke to me like I was one of his junior subalterns through, throughout. I, I did several trips with him, and he always spoke to me like I was one of his junior subalterns. And and phew, I tell you, that is one of the um, that is that's one of the best experiences that I've had. That this guy treated you like an equal. Because with, as a guide talking to veterans, you know, in the back of your mind is you don't want to say something that upsets them or offends them or diminishes in any way anything they went through and, and i've had a few vets say to me before at the beginning of a tour i don't understand why, why you're here you know what do you know about this and then then at the end of it um they say you know you're, you're real credits to what you do and, it, and it's good that the stories of these guys are, are being told in the way that you tell them and you know richard hargreaves like i say treated me like one of his subalterns and that was a great honor a real great honor and, and something that i'll never forget um so it's they're, they're an amazing generation and, and they're slipping fast from us now. Well, another reason, I think, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, you were in Italy uh, with Dig World War II, weren't you? Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, I've been working in television for about 20 years now, um, for a long chunk of that with the BBC, um, when BBC more regularly made um, documentaries about uh, the Second World War that weren't just about... Nazi Germany or mega structures and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and I've tried many, many times to to get a documentary um, about Italy made. It's a very difficult one to try and pull off. Television um, is a, is very costly, um, and I, you know I see all the time from Twitter experts saying this program or that program should be made. It, it's it's a difficult call. Um, but Dig World War Two was something that we got commissioned um, as an archaeology-based program around the Second World War, and nothing really had been done like this. And 
it was done in conjunction with BBC Northern Ireland, and we did quite a lot of stuff with um, diving on U-boat wrecks off Northern Ireland, things like that. But we went a bit further afield, and we had some co-production with both Americans and particularly Canadians. So um, we followed a, this gave us, when we were developing the stories, what could we do with the Canadian money? And, and the Canadians were very heavily involved in the final battle, breakout battle, in the Leary Valley at Casino and the attack on the Hitler line. And my good friend uh, Damiano, who was part of the Gustav Line group, which is an amateur group of archaeologists that have been excavating positions up in the mountains and so on. Um, you know, I went to Damiano and said, well, what could we do on the Hitler line? Knowing that because it was a static line and there was trenches there, and the Germans had built a lot of bunkers. Maybe there was a bunker that could be excavated. And, and, and he found for us an untouched bunker out in the middle of these fields, not far from the Liri, um, the River Liri itself, and uh, uh, close to Aquino, and and it was one, it was a machine gun uh, bunker, um, and headquarters bunker in this particular part of the of the Hitler line, and we went there. It never ever been touched. Damiano and his team sort of gridded it off, sort of. Uh, um, with tape and, and what have you, and, and went over it systematically. And the combat, we researched the combat there, and the combat was only about 10 or 15 minutes. So a Canadian Army unit sort of rocked up, and they were fired at from some of the anti-tank guns, and then a reconnaissance unit did a sort of a left hook and came around the back of this bunker, and some of the guys from the Canadian reconnaissance unit dismounted, and there was a firefight close to the bunker. And literally every bit of that, was unearthed in the archaeology. So they found, you know, the chain links from the German machine gun. They found discarded cartridges. They found British rounds in and around uh, the bunker where it had been fired at by Brens and, you know, Lee Enfields and Baser machine guns and things like this. Um, and they found um, fragments of Mills bombs. And, and a Canadian, some Canadians have become casualties there. We believe at least a couple of them have been killed. And they excavated... Um, a British steel helmet with a huge shrapnel hole straight through the top of it, which may well have been from a possibly a field grave of one of these guys that have been killed in this action. So it's not the same as, you know, excavating a Roman villa that no one knew was there. But what it does show is that even with the Second World War, the archaeology has a way of tying into to the written narrative and, and bringing a story alive, really. So... And it gave us an opportunity to do an episode about Italy, which, you know, touched a lot of people, I hope. Well, Paul, I've really enjoyed talking about this today and appreciate you having on the podcast. And what we'll do is we will share, obviously, when this is published, a link to your father's uh, testimony of his experiences. So everyone can have a look at that and the pictures, obviously, that go with it that we've touched on. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. I mean, he, he wrote that. It took me a long, long time to get him to write anything about this. He'd always talk about some of the funny stuff. But then uh, when my kids came along, he, he sort of softened up a little bit and he, and he wrote that account. And, and I'm so glad that he did. And and it's been read now by thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And it's great. It's a way of keeping that going. Well, really appreciate it, Paul. Thank you very much for your time today and look forward to having you back on here at some time in the future. My absolute pleasure. We hope you found it of interest. If you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. We hugely appreciate your support. We should be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode of the O Group on our social media channels. 
You can find this info and drop us a message with any questions you have by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Worlds Nation, and also Instagram at Worlds Nation HQ. Obviously, also a big thank you to Paul for taking the time to chat with us about this fascinating topic. Stay tuned for more episodes of the O Group here on the Worlds Nation podcast very shortly.